Open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We're going to be reading just two verses. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. As we work our way towards the end of Paul's letter here, and the Lord's willing, we'll complete that next Lord's Day with verses 10 to the end. Verses 8 and 9, let us hear now God's word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. What do you think about that? That's a pretty common question. What we ask of others, others ask of us. But we need to think about that in a very specific way as Christians. What do we think about you fill in the blank? It could be anything. Because what we think, the thoughts that we have, directly impact the way that we live. Heart and mind go together. They are almost the same thing in biblical terms. You can't really think of one without the other if we're thinking the way the Bible does. Paul says, I want you to think about certain things. I want your mind to be focused on certain things. Now keep in mind, these two verses basically constitute the end of the body of the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. From verse 10 on to the end, he's going to deal with more personal things, finally with greetings at the end. But those are very, very important as we'll see. He talks there about being content. So maybe that could get our attention as we think about next Sunday. But here, he begins verse eight with the word finally. Don't laugh. If you're familiar with Philippians, you know that he said finally, uh, this is the third time he said finally. And no, that's not because he has this disease called preacher-itis. The word finally, as we pointed out uh, one of the other times that he used this word, it really means as for the rest, the rest of what I'm saying. Almost like the word next, the next thing I want to say. So it's a little misleading when we see that word finally, and we don't need to downplay it and just think in terms of, well, that's funny, Paul, You've, you keep saying finally. When are you going to say finally, finally? Finally, he says in these two verses, and this really is a summation of everything he said through this letter. Everything I've taught you, everything you've heard, 
as we'll see, and seen and learned from me. All these things, you need to, you need to think about them. You need to focus, learn to train and focus your minds on godly things. The real battle for Christians, really for everyone, but especially for Christians, the real battle that we face is the battle that takes place, that takes place between our ears. What comes into our minds? And how do we treat those? How can we discipline ourselves to keep our minds focused on the things of God? That will have a direct bearing then on how we live our lives and how God blesses us. So note the principle here that's in verse 8. Now, there's the same formula used here in these two verses that we saw in the immediately preceding verses, 4 through 6. He basically gave a principle there, rejoice in the Lord always. Then he talks about the practice of it in prayer. And then in verse 7, he gives a promise. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Same formula he's using here in verses 8 and 9. The principle is focus on godly standards. Wherever you find them, you need to, to take your minds and train them to, to stay zeroed in, laser-like, on the things of God, the things that are, are worthy of God and pleasing to God. And he gives six examples here. They're very closely related to each other. There's a lot of overlapping here. But it's pretty obvious what he's saying. And he, he prefaces each one of these with the word whatever. He says that six times with these six examples, one each time. Whatever. Now, this is an overused term today. Think of an example of a mother and a daughter in a store. Do you want to get this pair of jeans or that pair of jeans? Followed by a long sigh. <sighs> Whatever. We're all familiar with that, right? That's not exactly what Paul has in mind here. He's, he's taking this to a deeper level than that. He's saying anything you come across that fits the following description of these six things, really eight things, you need to recognize these virtues because they are vital to a life that is pleasing to God. Look at what they are. Whatever is true. If something is not true, you don't need to be focusing on that. The word here really means whatever is real. The great thing about the Christian faith is it deals with reality. It deals with facts. It deals with truth. In spite of the fact that those who aren't believers in Christ don't get that. You and I live in a time where the whole idea of what's true is out the window. There is no transcendent, objective version of truth that is embraced by the world. So now we have a phrase like, well, you speak your truth. You live your life according to your truth. 
Well, <laughs> that's not what we go by because our version of truth is all warped and twisted by our sinful nature. So we need the one who made us, the one who made everything, the one who is ultimately wonderfully good to make clear to us what truth is. True truth. As Nancy Piercy said in uh, her wonderful book on this very subject. True truth. What's genuine? What's real? Whatever is honorable, he says next. That's pretty clear. Whatever's worthy of respect. We use the term honorable in a lot of ways. We refer to judges as the honorable so-and-so. We talk about uh, soldiers getting an honorable discharge from their service. Honorable retirement and so on. Whatever is honorable, worthy of respect. Whatever is just, he says next. That just means right. Just right. <laughs> whatever is pure. That is, whatever is free from moral corruption both inwardly and outwardly. Whatever is lovely, what that means admirable. And it's not speaking so much of physical beauty, the, the loveliness of a pastoral setting where you've got this wonderful pond surrounded by these meadows and you can envision a beautiful scene like that and then you say, that's lovely. Yes. And then he says, Oh, well, let me just mention here in lovely, the psalmist said, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. And whatever is commendable, whatever's worthy of recommendation. Now look at those six things. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Those things aren't just strictly spiritual things like, oh, the Bible. Oh, worship. Oh, the Ten Commandments. Yes, it's that, but it's broader than that. It, it encompasses all of life, the world we live in, the physical world as well as the spiritual world. And he adds two additional qualities pre prefaced by the word if. The first six were prefaced by whatever, and these last two are prefaced by the word if. If there is any excellence, that means ethical integrity. If there is anything worthy of praise, that could mean worthy of praise to God or worthy uh, in terms of being able to praise others in the right sense. Any of these things, if there's any of these things, six plus two, all eight of those things together, think about these things. You see how he builds that up? Here's what I want you to think about. These are the qualities, the virtues that believers in Christ should be cultivating in their thought patterns. When he says, think about these things, he's saying, give it, give it proper consideration. Consider anything that is good and pure and right and so on. And as we shall see, this leads to practicing it. 
The point here, though, is that we do not have to, nor does God expect us to or want us to invent our own standards of virtue. It's what God says is virtuous that we need to, to reorient our lives towards. We don't come to God and say, now, Lord, this is the way I am, and I hope you accept it because that's just the way I am. This is the way I think. These are my patterns of thinking and then doing based on what I'm thinking. Well, God says, no, you need to submit for your own good. You need to submit to what I declare to be good and just and commendable. And yet people are doing the exact opposite of that today, of course. We, are, we have people who are basically have declared their, their declaration of independence from God. And they want to go by what they like. They want to go by how they think. They want to stay in what they believe is the best way to live. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. That's one of the most powerful verses out of Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to man, but where does it get you? Death, a living death in this life, followed by real death and eternal death in the next life. We don't want to go down that road, nor should we. On one level, these descriptive characteristics can be found, though, in, even in non-Christians. Good, just, things that are lovely. You know, non-Christians, to a degree, on a certain level, can see the value and, and goodness of those things. We should encourage and promote those things wherever we can, even in secular settings. A number of years ago, William Bennett, the former Secretary of Education, wrote on this subject in a book titled, The Book of Virtues. And these very virtues that we're talking about here are included in that book. And he was saying we need to educate children to realize what, what good virtues are that people should live by, being honest, you know, putting others ahead of yourself, and so on. And so on one level, that, that ties in with what we're saying. But of course, Christians understand that ultimately we cannot please God by living out these qualities on a purely human level. We need the transforming power of Christ to give us the right motives and the ability to live them out as God would have us live them out. These are the things we need to think about, says Paul. Now, I wanna ask you, what does your mind tend to focus on? And especially in idle times. When you're not focusing on your job, you're not focusing on uh, replacing a light bulb at home with a new light fixture and all that, you're not focusing on a meal, you've got more idle time. 
How do you use that time? What do you think about? Are those things true and good and lovely and commendable and all of the things Paul mentions? Because when you focus your mind on things that are not pleasing to God, that are not virtuous, they are going to impact your attitudes, going to impact the way you conduct yourself, the way you live. It will weaken you as a Christian not to focus on things that are pleasing to God. Garbage in, garbage out, right? Consider how this applies to you then in your use of your cell phone or your computer. Are you reading things, seeing things that are not fitting into these standards? Hey, we're sinners still, aren't we? It's not like we can all sit here and say, oh, I never have that problem. Some way or another, we all do. Or how, how we watch television. There's so many bad things on television that it's hard to find some good things. And usually when you do, it's because you have found things that were filmed in the 1950s or 60s. So we've got to control the way that we deal with these things. I, in fact, I would use the word, the term self-censorship. We need to censor ourselves. I'm not going to read that because it's not helping me grow in my faith or it's not something that's wholesome and virtuous. Books, magazines, Facebook, movies. I mean, we could go on and on. The things that could fill our minds and occupy our minds that may be fine, but also there are many things that aren't. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that takes us to the practice of this in, in uh, the next section there. He goes on and tells us in verse <clears throat> 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The last part is the God of peace will be with you is the promise. We'll get to that. Knowing what pleases God is one thing and we do need to know that. That's where we start if we're going to be serious about honoring the Lord in our lives. But seeking such virtues actually lived out by individuals, I should say seeing such virtues lived out by individual believers in Christ is really a key to helping us practice such a life ourselves. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm not just going to tell you to keep these standards. I'm going to actually give you ways in which you can be encouraged to do that. Look around you in your church community in this church or others you know uh, outside of this church who are strong believers in Christ. Paul is saying, look, if you want to find someone to, that's trying to live out these virtues, look at me. Look at me. Whatever you've heard, how does he put it? What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, all the, that whole package there, 
It's like Paul is saying, look, my life is an open book. And you may say, isn't this a little egotistical, Paul? You know, look at me. I'm the paragon of virtue. Remember what he said in chapter 3? Let me remind you. Beginning at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. That means resurrection, righteousness, total pure righteousness. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so he's saying, look, you can look at me, but you don't have to look just at me or even look at me at all. You can look at anyone that you believe is seeking to live a godly life, an exemplary life, not a perfect life, not a sinless life. Remember, Christianity is the only religion, I don't like to use that term for Christianity, but for this purpose, it's the only religion that deals with reality. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the one that points out that we are depraved, sinful creatures. The world doesn't want to hear that. And so they have this, this high view, which is really a low view, of man. Oh, man is basically good. No, man is basically sinful. But man can be good through the power of Christ working in them in the gospel. So Paul says... To the extent that you're following me, or I should say follow me to the extent that I am following Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, is, he says that very thing. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now think of people, maybe one person, maybe several that you know, who are serious about following Christ. You may be sitting next to one. And think about how can I deal with some of the areas in my life that need to be shored up to be more pleasing to God? How can I be more like that person who seems to be getting along better in that area than I am? What can I learn from that person? It takes humility to do that. It's humbling for sure, but it's important. It's so necessary. Christ, of course, is our perfect example. Good to have real life models. But again, as Paul said, follow me as I'm following Christ. You know, so ultimately Christ is the one who kept all of these virtues. And we look to him ultimately to help us. We are again reminded here of the importance of having godly examples to influence us in our spiritual growth. And we need to be examples to others in turn. Children, for instance, need to see what a real Christian is like in adult form. 
Adults need to practice this kind of life. You never know if somebody's watching you, right? There's that saying that uh, Christians are the only Bible that some people will ever read. And I, I think that a lot of non-Christians have looked at maybe not so great examples of people who claim to be Christians and they think everybody's like that. Well, we can't control all that, but we can control our own lives and those that are in our own congregations and families. In other words, our faith is not intended to be a private thing, as so many wimpy Christians are saying. Oh, my faith is a private thing. No, you need to be more like Paul. My life is an open book. I'll tell you right now that I am a sinner saved by grace. That's what John Newton said on his deathbed. He was asked, what do you think? What are your thoughts as you're about to die? He says that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That's about as full a statement as you can make in, few word, in a few words. Now, the promise. The promise is simply the God of peace will be with you and we don't need to forget it. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Are we doing that? Earlier in this chapter, Paul gave instructions on prayer. <clears throat> it's God's way to deal with the anxiety, the stress of our lives, which we looked at last week. But here he's... He's, he's taking this idea of our concerns and other matters to the Lord in prayer, and he promises that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, verse 7. But now Paul turns that phrase around, and instead of saying the peace of God, he promises that as we practice holy living, the God of peace will be with us. Talked about God being with us last week also, but here he's very specific. The God of peace. God is the source of peace in your life. Not your bank account. Not how well non-Christians in your job are treating you or how poorly. It's God himself that's the source of your peace. The peace of God, the God of peace. And he says, if you live these, this way, if you make it your aim to, to, to grow in God's grace and train your mind to stay laser focused on the things that please God, then God's peace will be with you. The God of peace, I should say, will be with you. God himself, the one who can provide you peace. You know, many times in the Bible, God promises us that he will be with us. And we need to think more clearly and powerfully about what that really is saying. You're never on your own. You're never on your own. You've got God to call on. God who's present. God whose peace will flood your heart, your mind in Christ. Joshua was told when he became the successor to Moses 
Have I not commanded you, Joshua? Do not be terrified. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And that statement is true of every Christian. Instead of fear, we can have peace. So how do you go about deciding how you should live? In specific ways, in decision-making, in how you use uh, your, your uh, cell phone and the internet and Facebook and all of these social media things. How do, you, how do you make decisions on what I'm going to be involved in and what I'm not? This is so practical, isn't it? Such a great guide for us. So would I, I would humbly suggest the whatever principle for our Christian lives. Whatever is good and so on, all the way down the line. The very character of God himself that we seek to practice will enable us to be holy as he is holy. As you trust in Christ and rely on his wisdom and his spirit working in you, you will be able to practice what Paul is commending in these verses. And of course, you can do this because the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the practical wisdom that we find all through your word, but particularly these two verses. We pray that they would indeed be uh, written in our minds and that we would remember them as a guide for us when we have decisions to make or when we're evaluating uh, how we're doing in the Christian life. Help us to realize the importance of submitting our minds to your truth that we might learn to think Christianly in all things, bringing every thought into captivity to Christ. By your grace, Lord, enable us to seek this and to practice it. And we pray this in Jesus' name.